Sean Zabashi here. Welcome to part three of looking at Matt Rosengren's Cave Art Perception and Knowledge, where we've been trying to answer this question, why was it so hard for experts to see cave art in the 1800s and before? But we're going to start with a diversion. We're going to start by going to Papua New Guinea, looking at a paper from the 1970s um, by an anthropologist called Anthony Forge, titled learning to see in New Guinea. For an in-depth example showing how thought styles and thought collectives, to use Ludwig Flex terminology, or doxa, to use Protagoras's, can influence how we perceive. We see, or don't see, things in relation to what we already know, what we've already experienced. This paper focuses on the Abalam people, who live in northern Papua New Guinea, with a population totaling around 30,000, living in villages of a few hundred to several hundred. The abstract introduces by saying that the paper will argue that, quote, through their early experiences, particularly in the context of the Tambaran cult, boys and young men acquire a set of fixed expectations about what they will see in two dimensions that is, on the flat, and hence that polychrome two-dimensional paintings become a closed system, unrelated to natural objects, or to carvings and other three-dimensional art objects, or, indeed, to anything outside the paintings. These expectations act to prevent them seeing, that is, making sense of, anything in two dimensions that is not part of the closed system. They also enable Ablam flat painting to act directly on the fully initiated adult as a system of communication and not as a representation of any other communication system such as myth." Unquote. This episode is going to be all about unpacking that, explaining what exactly that means and what exactly that looks like, how exactly the Abalam are prevented from seeing other things in two dimensions. Um, Although I'm sure you can already see the resonances with everything we've been talking about in the previous two episodes. They have expectations about what they'll see in two dimensions that prevents them from seeing, that is, making sense of, anything in two dimensions that's not part of that system. I think a lot of people understand making sense of as a way to say, figure out how something relates to truth or fits into objective reality. They don't focus too much on the making part. But if you accept the arguments of Rosengren and others, we truly do make sense. We don't decipher sense. And people not intuitively thinking this is very understandable, not just because we sort of believe what our culture believes or whatever, but because we live in a world nowadays that's globally connected, essentially instantaneously in many areas. So it's harder and harder to find people who who makes sense in radically different ways to yourself. 
The internet and other aspects of global connectivity kind of flattens this. Ways of making sense become increasingly homogenized. It's interesting because the part of the internet people talk about the most is how it divides, right? Because people, anybody who's connected can be connected to anybody else who's connected across the globe, which means that, you know, you can form niche belief systems with like 300 people online, none of whom live in your local area. <laughs> but there's also this maybe more subtle homogenizing effect, right? Like even if there's a boomer in Seattle who believes everything MSNBC has ever said, never questioning it, and they're in a furious argument with a teenager in rural Pakistan who loves Donald Trump, you know, even though their worldviews and everything are quite divided, they're also arguing on the same platform. You know, they're all aware of, uh, you know, you know they, they see things through this rectang rectangular screen. So there's a homogenizing effect too. It, it, the internet makes you feel like you're talking to all sorts of people, but it's also bringing everybody on the same level of making sense, you know? You really have to go back into the historical and ethnographic record to find people who have never seen a photograph before, for example, like the Abalam in the mid-20th century. So let's look a little deeper at them via this paper by Anthony Forge. Forge notes that the Abalam's traditional culture has been very strongly maintaining itself compared to other cultures in Papua New Guinea, many of whom, you know, developed cargo cults after contacting some Japanese or Europeans, or had other difficulties keeping their traditions intact after contacting more and more of the globalized world. This might be still true, I'm not sure, but, you know, Forge was writing in 1970 based off of fieldwork conducted in the previous two decades, so his opinions come from quite a while ago. I actually stumbled across an interesting episode from 1984 that really shows the shifts taking place after about a century of contact with the globalized world, especially missionaries in Papua New Guinea. This episode isn't something that occurred with the Abalam, so maybe they're different, still maintaining themselves, but rather a neighboring culture, the Ilahita Arapesh, who also practiced the Tamburan cult. This is something we'll run into again. There's lots of overlap between neighboring cultures and their beliefs. Um, and the Tamburan cult that both the Abalam and the Ilahita Arapesh practice, it's not called a cult just to be rude. It's not like we'd call it a religion if it were white people doing it or something. It's called a cult because it's men only. I don't know about the Ilahita Arapesh, but according to the Forge, Abalam ritual can be divided into two main cults, both men only, um, for a lot of important parts of it, the Tamburan cult and the Long Yam cult. So these men only secretive cults kind of form the basis of their spirituality. But anyways, this episode um, occurred in 1984 when a bunch of Ilahita Arapesh men influenced by Christianity, told the women the secrets of the cult, which destroyed the cult. Like, essentially, they were like, hey, ladies, sorry, but the only secret was that it was a secret. <laughs> like, they kind of made it seem like there wasn't really much, uh, much there, much content within the secret rituals. 
This is something written about in The Cassowary's Revenge by Donald Tuzin, an anthropologist who was part of this revealing or destruction of the cult. He kind of became like a uh, like a figure that they had prophesized, <laughs> which I don't think was his intention. Just thought that was interesting. A book I want to read at some point. But anyways, the tambourine ritual among the Ablam is centered around these spirits called Nguandu, and Forge calls them spirits, plural, but other sources about nearby cultures talk about a singular being called Nguol. Again, lots of cultural overlap. Um, reading between the lines, it seems like the Ablam believe in multiple spirits called Nguandu, but other nearby cultures have similar beliefs and traditions, but rather around a singular being called Nikwal, about which I could find more information. <laughs> so I'll read a couple passages about these neighboring cultures, just to get an idea about these Nguandu or this Nikwal. The anthropologist William Buckner says, quote, During an undetermined time period preceding European contact, a gargantuan humanoid spirit god conquered parts of the Sepik region of Papua New Guinea. With a voracious appetite for pork and yams, and occasional demands of ritual murder, Nigual was the tutelary spirit for a number of Sepik horticulturalist societies, where males of various Patra clans were united in elaborate cult systems, including initiation grades and ritual secrecy, devoted to following the whims of this commanding entity." Unquote. And the aforementioned Donald Tuzin takes over with an even more dramatic description that I very much love, saying, quote, Cult members know the secret myths. They know that Nigual depends on them for food and shelter. Metaphors conjure forth an infantile image, a vast baby crying piteously to be fed, its tears the untimely rains that spoil hunting and gardening activities. On the other hand, this is no ordinary toddler. His monumental power and monumental dependency evoke worrisome prospects of what he may do if his needs are not smartly and amply met. And even if they are, this is no guarantee that a moment's whimsy will not move Nigual to deliver death or discomfiture on those who support and care for him. Unquote. <laughs> First of all, vast baby is an excellent phrase. <laughs> vast baby. <laughs> I was uh, giggling about that one for a while. But for the Abilam, I guess it would be like vast babies, <laughs> plural. Um, anyways, this tambran is a ritual based on, for one, male secrecy that keeps these spirits fed and happy, but a huge part of it is involves a lot of visual art, to use, to use my culture's category. The leaders show initiates carvings or paintings, and each time they tell them that they're being shown Nguandu. They're being shown these actual spirits. But then after a bit, the leaders go, no, no, we lied. That wasn't Nguandu, but the next thing we show you will be. And this happens repeatedly, until finally they show the initiate carved figures that are considered to be the actual Nguandu. And this isn't something that happens in one festive night. The full initiation from the beginning to seeing these carvings, the actual Nguandu, takes decades. 
This means that boys attend the ceremonies ever since they're born. There are various practices during the ceremony, like rubbing stinging nettles on themselves and being involved in physical beatings. There are also various things the initiates have to do, like follow certain taboos for a certain amount of time. The initiates aren't given reasons for why they must do these various actions. The leaders just tell them to do them. Forge says that, quote, their reactions vary between bewilderment and terror, unquote. But going into the specifics of the ritual would, I don't think, be good listening. And furthermore, I often think that giving brief summaries of this kind of thing, or cultural cosmologies that are radically different from contemporary mass culture, often leads to more confusion and misinterpretation, not less. Like, I was, I was reading this book about BC history, where um, they just sort of offhandedly mentioned that the indigenous people um, thought that these white people that they saw for the first time were salmon, were fish, and then just moves on, <laughs> right? Which, you know, for the naive reader who doesn't know anything, uh, like a detailed history and analysis of animistic cosmologies, they just think, like, <laughs> like they're like, what? They thought they were fish? That's, mm, well, they're probably really stupid then. <laughs> so that's a long way of saying that Let's just look at the art in the Tamboran ritual. All the art of the Ablam is cult art to some degree. Like even if a sculpture is in a house and just sitting there looking purely decorative, not brought to the ceremonies, it has motifs and style that is very much connected to the ritual ceremonies and cults and these spirits and you know, their whole cosmology obviously. And there's a reason I said sculpture just then. Sculptures are allowed to be decorative. Same with engravings and some other forms of art, but not painting. Painting is a very sacred action, a central part of the tambourine cult and ritual. In fact, the final stage to prepare for the ceremony involving the whole village is this painting done by all the male initiates. But the importance of paint is a lot deeper than that for the Ablam. Something I found really interesting is that any substance that's, you know, magically or supernaturally powerful in some way is called paint by the Ablam. In the David Lewis Williams episodes, we talked about how modernity's overemphasis on representation blinded a lot of researchers from interpreting the cave art in certain ways. Like, like for example, David Lewis Williams looked at some examples from the San, where the action of painting, or the paint itself, was a lot more important than the finished product. And Lewis Williams suggested that maybe the Paleolithic painters of France and Spain may have seen the paint itself as important in some way that goes beyond it being a tool. Like, both the paint itself and the action of painting, those can be more important than the finished product. Especially when it comes to the handprints. That was something Lewis Williams was talking about a lot. Right? Not just the finished product and how well it matches with something in objective reality. Not all cultures are primarily concerned with that, right? But the thing about the Abalam cosmology that's really cool is that it goes the other way. So rather than how we translate the beliefs of the San and perhaps Paleolithic people 
into our language and cosmology by saying that paint has a special spiritual sort of power to it, or the spiritual power is in the paint, like, like those sorts of ways of saying it. Instead of that, the Abelam world is structured so that the concept for paint covers what we call paint, but also any other substance that we would call spiritually powerful or magical, like like a talisman <laughs> that you wear around your neck. If an Abelam person saw that and the person told them, oh yeah, this talisman's for good luck, it's, you know, I think it has this sort of power to it. They'd be like, oh, that's cool paint. <laughs> Do you get what I mean? It's, it's pretty cool. For the San and perhaps the Paleolithic cave painters or some of them, paint has a magical power. That's how we talk about it at least. But for the Ablam, anything with magical power is paint or is categorized as paint. Anyways, how we translate other cosmologies into our own is a pretty fascinating subject, very tied up with that thing called the ontological turn in academia. It's a really cool thing to think about, in my opinion. Like when we read a Wikipedia article or a chapter in a textbook about a culture very foreign to us, it's often too short to get to this interesting place where the anthropologist encounters difficulty translating certain terms or concepts of this culture into the language and cosmology of the anthropologist. For example, English and, you know, westernized modernity, or whatever you want to call it. And it's really unfortunate because that's one place where anthropology is the most interesting, I think. When the anthropologist mentions that they struggle to convey a foreign concept or idea, and rather than finding a poor synonym in English and just moving on, they spend many words and many pages trying as hard as they can to explain this concept. This happens often with concepts that are really central to the culture and have all these different aspects and faces, concepts that are like thrumming with multiple meanings. A big one that comes up again and again is what another anthropologist, the type who is content with a rough synonym and then moving on, would call spirits, right? Like we did with the Nguandu. But the modern definition of spirit, at least the one that I use, already comes with a worldview. We can think back to Fleck, calling a conscious being that exists in another culture's cosmology, but not our own, a spirit, is relatively motivated. You can't just apply that word to their concept without any baggage. No, it brings all this other knowledge with it. Something it brings is the divide we've created between the natural and the supernatural. Early anthropologists would often use this dichotomy when describing other cultures, but this dichotomy is by no means universal. It's actually pretty historically specific. Many cultures haven't and don't conceptualize the world in this way. For one, they might believe in multiple different spiritual worlds, that you know the difference between them is as important as the difference between the natural world and one of those spiritual worlds. But usually I think it's more of the, it's more the case where like in their cosmologies, spirits are all around. They are within this world and other ones, like in such a way that nature and supernature are not cleanly divided enough to make sense as a division. 
in their culture. So by calling a being in the cosmology of a culture like that a spirit, without any other explanation, the anthropologist isn't getting a clear-eyed view of that culture or transmitting a clear-eyed view. They're kind of twisting and splitting how that culture understands the world to make it fit into their cosmology and their language, right? English and westernized modernity, or again, whatever you want to call it. But that other anthropologist, the one who spends many pages trying their best to explain this concept, they're doing something else. Something that Eduardo Vivieras de Castro, a Brazilian anthropologist who is a major figure in this ontological turn, something he argues should be developed further and replace traditional anthropology. Vivieras de Castro argues for a form of anthropology that is decolonial because it raises the concepts of the studied cultures to the same level of the concepts of the anthropologist, rather than having them in this subservient role where the concepts that don't fit are twisted and split up to fit the concepts of the anthropologist. And it's really cool, Vivieras de Castro developed this form of anthropology by treating the concepts of Amazonian indigenous cultures as, as on the same level of his own. So it creates this interesting looping, this deep form of circularity that isn't tautological, but like mutually reinforcing, spherically reinforcing, imminent. Vivieras de Castro developed a form of anthropology that raises the thought, the philosophy and concepts and cosmology of the studied culture up to become equal to the anthropologists, but he developed this by doing that very thing. <laughs> so, very fun, very cool. I'll talk about him more in another series, but just before we return to the Ablam, I want to talk about one other way to understand this. Something that shows that although Vivieras de Castro developed this form of anthropology, primarily via indigenous Amazonian thought, there were also precursors in the West like Deleuze and Guattari, big influences on him in ways way too complicated to get into here, but also some other figures, like a famous passage from the early 20th century philosopher Rudolf Panwitz. Panwitz makes an interesting and very cool argument about translation. He says, quote, Our translations, even the best ones, proceed from a mistaken premise. They want to turn Hindi, Greek, English into German, instead of turning German into Hindi, Greek, English. Our translators have a far greater reverence for the usage of their own language than for the spirit of the foreign works. The basic error of the translator is that he preserves the state in which his own language happens to be, instead of allowing his language to be powerfully affected by the foreign tongue. Particularly when translating from a language very remote from his own, he must go back to the primal elements of language itself and penetrate to the point where work, image, and tone converge. He must expand and deepen his language by means of the foreign language. It is not generally realized to what extent this is possible, to what extent any language can be transformed, how language differs from language almost the way dialect differs from dialect. However, this last is true only if one takes language seriously enough, not if one takes it lightly." Unquote. 
So in other words, Penwitz is saying that there are two forms of translation, a simplistic one that's more common, and a deeper one that he wants to draw people's attention to. Our translations, even the best ones, proceed from a mistaken premise. They want to turn Hindi, Greek, English into German, instead of turning German into Hindi, Greek, English. So Viviaris de Castro adopts this Panvitsian view of translation, but for anthropological translation. He thinks that a good anthropological translation should let the foreign concepts have the ability to alter and transform the conceptual schema of academic anthropology. This is how he wants anthropology to raise up the thought of its subjects to the level of the thought of academia, of the anthropologist, by this deeper form of translation. Where the anthropologist doesn't try to twist and split and mold the concepts and cosmologies of the studied cultures into their own concepts and cosmology so the reader understands that culture in terms of westernized modernity and the slice of westernized modernity called contemporary academic anthropology, but rather they try as best as possible to translate foreign concepts and cosmologies so they twist the reader around a bit. So they have the power to alter the conceptual framework and cosmology of the anthropologist of westernized modernity. One way to do this is to do what that imagined anthropologist was doing a little while earlier, using tons of English words and pages to try to explain just one concept of the studied culture, rather than being satisfied with a loose, misleading, ready-made synonym. That cool thing that happens, that thing I said is one of the coolest parts of anthropology, that's the feeling of this deeper form of translation. When the culture you're reading about doesn't twist into your own worldview and neatly slide into the slots that already exist, but instead your own worldview twists a little bit to partially, usually temporarily, become that worldview. This twisting of your world, this challenging of the framework by which you understand the world by a foreign framework developed by a people you have never met in an area of the globe you've never been. And this can only happen when the foreign concepts are translated in this deeper way, where they aren't split up to fit into our framework, but retain enough wholeness to be something foreign, something that doesn't fit, something that must be dealt with since it can be ignored. Super cool stuff. And we got here a little bit with the Abalam's definition of paint, right? Before, when I was just calling it paint, you're like, okay, so they paint things like we do, cool. But when I said that for them, paint is defined as any magical or supernaturally powerful substance, it kind of shifts things a bit. You go, oh, okay, I've never thought of the world like that before. That's interesting. But there's something about the Abalam view of paint that I didn't translate well enough. I said that all magically and supernaturally powerful substances are classified as paint by the Ablam, but the paint for them is not inherently powerful. It becomes powerful by action when the people use it properly, so it becomes what Forge calls the medium of the ceremony. So the paint is powerful only because the ceremony sort of flows through it. If you're like me and thought differently at first, like 
that the paint had a power in it. That's probably because we live in a culture where the dominant cosmology has a concept called matter. And this matter isn't connected to any spiritual powers or divinities or consciousness. It's inert, but some matter has a sort of power that can be accessed via chemical or nuclear reactions, or by being organized in a certain way, like if you organize specific matter in a way that makes it a machine. Um, these are all different ways that power sort of comes out of matter in certain conditions. This or some other aspect of how westernized modernity understands the world is probably why I and probably you had a different interpretation of the Ablam view of paint at first, before I explain this. So this is just a taste of that deeper form of anthropological translation, what that can feel like. Like, like now I'm thinking about matter having a power because of something flowing through it, rather than a power inherent to it. Like I think about my toaster as having a kind of power because it's connected to electrical power, and made in such a way that if I do certain actions, it heats bread to turn it into toast. But it's cool to think about it having a power instead because my morning ritual of making toast flows through it. <laughs> uh, and you might not be on board yet. Um, it's key to mention that the goal of Vivieros de Castro really resonates with Fleck. The goal isn't to translate the cultures studied in the deeper way because the foreign concepts or frameworks are a better way at getting at objective truth. That might be the case sometimes, it may come up, but that's not really the point of the deep translation, at least not to Vivieres de Castro. Thinking that the goal is to acquire a concept that is a better match with reality, that's the thinking of Plato and traditional epistemology, not this road we've been going down of Protagoras and Rosengren and doxology. The point is more focused on how the foreign concept challenges the conceptual schema of the anthropologist and the reader, how deeper anthropological translation might lead to new ways of thinking, how it might open up lines of flight that birth new conceptual schemas, new concepts, new practices, new cosmologies. Like, I, of course, think that my original way of understanding the power of my toaster is a pretty good one to hold on to. I'm not completely swayed by the Ablam cosmology after reading one paper about them. I'm not going to like abandon my framework for understanding the world, my worldview, my cosmology. But this Ablam-inspired way of thinking about the toaster isn't necessarily wrong. If there's some sort of global collapse, and I spend some years only surviving on whatever I can scrounge up, and there's no town baker, and I don't know how to cultivate wheat and turn it into dough and then bread, and nobody in the community does either, but we have a big village generator. In this scenario, the toaster is pretty useless. So in this imagined example, we can kind of understand a little bit better this other way of looking at the toaster, where it gets its power from sliced bread flowing through it. <laughs> like, you know, now it sits in my dilapidated house, and I can plug it into the generator's power and heat up any narrow, small, bread-shaped thing. But that's never really a task that comes up. Maybe someday, but, you know, since there's no longer bread to flow through the toaster, it no longer really has power. 
eventually I lose track of it. Maybe I threw it out or something. Maybe the village kids took it because it looks weird and left it somewhere. It doesn't really matter because it's lost its power. The sliced bread gave it power in a way. Like I feel like people would eventually lose the name for it. They'd forget the name toaster. So anyways, this is an example of the deeper form of translation for something very trivial, a toaster. But hopefully you can see a bit of what Viviaris de Castro means about, you know, the power of this deep translation. It's not super related to Rosengren and the rest of it, but I just thought it was interesting. Hope you did too. Um, and one more thing to add about the ablam that relates to paint is that they also understand color in a paint-centric way too. Their words for colors are not like ours, where it's like words that are abstracted from reality as concepts that can be applied to anything that gives us a certain visual stimulation, right? This thing's red, that thing's red. Red is a completely abstract color, abstracted from anything that is red, you know? But for the Ablam, their words for colors are actually the words for the paint that is that color. And these color words are only used in ritual contexts. This doesn't mean just during the ceremonies, but it means that they classify things in nature in often fairly complicated ways, but without using any color words, like dividing up trees based on the shape of their leaves, but never mentioning their color. The color is only used when talking about something in these ritual contexts like like for one example like birds are classified often based on color even sharing names and linguistic roots with the words for colors that they are but but this is because birds are related to ritual they're related to the two cults to their cosmology in a deep way because birds are totems for the ablam they have a very important place in how the Ablam understand the world, so they're sort of able to take on these very important color terms that are related to paint, these paint-centric color terms. Anyways, for the Ablam, carving is also important, having its own surrounding rituals and also often done in secrecy, but it's not like painting where all the initiates must do it. However, all the carvings are painted, along with flat surfaces on the outside and inside of the ceremonial house. These carvings are usually in a human-like form. Remember, most of the carvings are not Nguandu, but the initiates are told that they are as a sort of ritualized prank before they, after decades, are finally shown the actual Nguandu carvings, which usually have larger heads than the human carvings. The carvings are made and painted in a certain style, as well as yams during the ceremony. Um, Forge says, quote, the identification of man Yam and Nguandu, provided by the stylistic unity of their several faces, is one of the most important theological functions of Ablam art. Unquote. 
But here's where it gets interesting. And this is why, this is getting to the beginning of why I'm bringing it up as an example. Forge says, quote, But the Nguandu has more than one face. Although in three dimensions on carvings, Nguandu faces are always the same, when painted on the flat, the elements that make up the face and their arrangement are different. There are some similarities, the forehead ornament is the same and in the same place, but the eyes, nose, and mouth are represented in a completely different manner. This is not due to the problems of representing a three-dimensional object in two dimensions. The eyes, for instance, in the carvings are black, triangular, or semicircular, and in about the natural proportion to the rest of the face. In flat paintings, they are huge, a series of polychrome rings that dominate the face." Unquote. And then he goes on to talk about many more differences between the carvings and the flat paintings, like differences between the arms and the hands. Like, it's not just a difference in somebody trying to get something three-dimensional onto a two-dimensional surface. It's like, it's obvious that they're not trying. That's not the point of the art. So then Forge steps back to try to explain this. He says that neither of the painted Nguandu are meant to be representations. They are understood as, Forge says, quote, different manifestations of the Nguandu, but Nguandu manifest themselves in other forms as vicious wild boars, as a whole series of noises, and in dreams as tall, strong men in full war paint an entirely different style of face painting and ornamentation from that of the carvings or the flat paintings. The point here is that neither the carving nor the painting on the flat shows what a Nguandu looks like. They are both arrangements of stylistic elements that mean Nguandu in the appropriate context only. The carvings among carvings, the paintings among paintings. The two systems are unrelated." Unquote. So neither the 3D nor the 2D paintings, in 3D it's painted carvings, are meant to match with anything in reality. They're conceived of as different ways the Nguandu can be out of many others. It's hard to explain. And Forge argues that their aesthetic systems, the different style of each, are not related to each other. But they do both have a logic to them. It's not like someone can just paint whatever, and then some leader figure goes, yep, that's a Nguandu, all right. Then everyone else agrees due to his authority. Like, they do have to look like something. There's a certain style that they have to fit into. Elsewhere, Forge talks about the flat painting style and says that the flat paintings form a code built out of a finite number of stylistic elements. Various arrangements of these elements signify Nguandu, butterfly, flying fox, etc., in a way that is closer to our use of the elements P, I, and G to signify a member of the genus Sus than to any drawing, however schematic, of a four-legged snouted animal." Unquote. That last bit was just him talking about pigs in a very complicated way. Um, but anyways, this passage is really interesting to me. He's saying that the style of the paintings has a sort of code, a sort of semantics. It kind of acts in a way that matches the painting to something else, but this matching is more analogous to aspects of our language than our visual art. 
like think about the difference between somebody drawing a pig in our society and the word pig like the drawing feels a lot less random it has to look in a particular way that like matches with pigs in reality at least in the way we organize reality but the word pig is understood to be you know arbitrary we could have called pigs bloggedy booze if we wanted to so he's saying that the stylistic elements of the paintings for the ablam are kind of more like the word pig for us than a drawing of a pig and how it relates to the Nguandu. The part that's relevant for his next point, what this paper has been building to, is that the two-dimensional paintings are not connected to either nature or the three-dimensional paintings. The obvious question, one that you may have been wondering already, is how the ablam understand photographs. Forge mentions that children aren't usually allowed to go into the ceremonial houses. So this means that the only two-dimensional things Abalam children see are the thatched sides of buildings, any flat part of the ground, and the external facade of the ceremonial houses, which, quote, are brightly painted, and one of their main stylistic features is the multiple polychrome lines that are used to outline all the principal shapes of the design, unquote. And the children are also not allowed to paint, since it's a highly sacred activity. So I think even though boys are in these initiation ceremonies from when they're born, I think, you know, painting starts when they're, they've reached a certain age of maturity, I guess. However, Forge was somehow able to do an experiment giving the children paper and paint. And he found that they would always use multiple lines to outline figures, lines that have different thicknesses and colors. So it's important to note that they didn't just copy the paintings on the buildings, though. Like, they drew their own things. Like, they'd be like, oh, I'm going to draw a person. I'm going to draw a snake. But the interesting thing is that they borrowed the style from the houses. They borrowed the style, but not the content. And they did this when he observed them drawing in the sand, too. They'd always draw the figures with multiple lines outlining their figure. Multiple different colored, different shaped lines. But that's not all. Forge also gave paper and paint to older Abalam, men who had gone through decades of initiation and ritual ceremonies centered on painting. Something I haven't mentioned yet is that these paintings are all done on black mud surfaces. So Forge describes the difference between the children and the adults when given uh, paper and paint. He says, quote, Children, when painting, are quite happy with white paper. Indeed, they positively preferred white paper because the colors showed up better, whereas their elders, the real artists, who did many excellent paintings on gray and black paper for me, were unable to tackle white paper. Their technique involves outlining the whole design in white on the black or gray bud, and they cannot cope with black on white. The ability of children to use white paper confirms that they paint with multiple polychrome lines because that is the way they see marks on flat surfaces, and not because they have been taught to do so in the cult context." Unquote. The children hadn't been taught to paint yet, so they were open enough to accommodate painting on a white background, but they painted in a certain way because of 
the only flat surfaces they had seen in their whole lives. They, they could only see in a certain style, it seems like. The Abalam first made contact with Europeans in 1937 and saw photographs then, and they were aware of the technology of photography for the 20 years in between then and when Forge started living with them in the 1950s. But even so, quoting Forge, quote, the Abalam's lack of understanding of photographs after more than 20 years of contact remains almost absolute and provides possible support for my hypothesis that they have very definite and limited expectations about what they will see on any two-dimensional surface made to be looked at. In other words, their vision has been socialized in a way that makes photographs especially incomprehensible, just as ours is socialized to see photographs and, indeed, to regard them as in some sense more truthful than what the eye sees." Unquote. The almost in almost absolute lack of understanding, it does brush over something interesting, because there are in fact photographs that the Abalam Forge lived with had and could see in the way that's meant. The male Abalam in their late teens or early 20s had begun to often travel away from the community to the coast to work for a few years, and they would often return with photographs taken by Chinese photographers of themselves dressed in a way that made them look cool or weird to the other Ablam who had never ventured as far away as they had. So the Ablam did learn how to see photographs. Even the ones that didn't go to the coast could recognize like their neighbor in a photo. But Forge noticed that all these photos were of the individual facing the camera, standing awkwardly still, in front of a white background. So he showed the Abalam some other photographs. He describes this, saying, quote, but when shown photographs of themselves in action or of any pose other than face or full figure looking directly at the camera, they cease to be able to see the photograph at all. Even people from other villages who came specially because they knew I had taken a photograph of a relative who had subsequently died and were often pathetically keen to see his features, were initially unable to see him at all, turning the photograph in all directions. Even when the figure dominated, to my eyes, the photograph, I sometimes had to draw a thick line around it before it could be identified, and in some cases, I had the impression that they willed themselves to see it, rather than actually saw it, in the way we do. Photographs of ceremonial houses and objects were easier, Although in black and white, people could identify a house as a ceremonial house, rather than say which house it was. With color, they were happier, partly because they looked into a viewer, which itself was three-dimensional, instead of staring at a flat sheet. But they could rarely identify individuals, and had a tendency to regard any brightly colored photograph with no outstanding form as a tambourine display. Since I needed identifications from photographs of yam exchanges, brawls, ceremonies, and debates, I trained a few boys to see photographs. They learned to do this after a few hours of concentrated looking and discussion on both sides." Unquote. So, 
tons of interesting stuff in there. Forge understands this by thinking about the average Abalam boy growing up. He says that the Abalam don't have many myths. In fact, remarkably few compared to other similar cultures and nearby cultures. This means that the ceremonies and many social rules don't have mythical reasons behind them. They're just done because that's the way it is. They're done because they are good and they make more good. <laughs> like, there's no sort of complex mythological scaffolding that, that provides a foundation. Parts of the ritual do have an easily graspable cause and effect, like you know, just making something up. But if an elder organizes food in a particular place and in a particular way to feed the Nguandu, the reason is pretty obvious, right? Like, we're going to feed these weird spirits so they stay happy and don't try to eat our food or us at a later point in time. But the paint and paintings and stuff like that, and why they're made in a particular style, that sort of thing doesn't have any obvious explanation. So Forage imagine, imagines a boy being raised, every so often attending one of these ceremonies as a young initiate, and having a certain stance towards paint and patented things and color where they are thrumming with deep, ineffable cosmic importance. But while paintings are powerful, they don't refer to anything outside of themselves, in nature or society. Forge calls it a closed system. It also remarks that the Ablam don't analyze or describe the paintings. They just have some words for different designs. As I already mentioned, Forge says that the paintings might be better understood like a language, but they are a language that none of the Ablam understand fully, because it's also not a language, if you get what I mean. Maybe that's not the best way to say it. Like, like Forge says that, quote, neither the initiators nor the initiates are totally conscious of the significance of the designs they paint. To them, they are essential parts of the ceremony, and their form is dictated by tradition. The art communicates some fundamental values of Abalam society, but this communication is not fully conscious to anyone concerned, unquote. This is obviously weird, until you realize that the reason it seems weird goes back to that whole debate about how linguistic our rational thinking is. Like, like is our thought some burbling thing that we apply language to after the fact, or is our thought linguistic at the deepest level, at least partly or in some way? The reason the Ablam are not fully conscious of the meanings is because if the paintings do constitute a language, it's a different type of language than what we normally mean by it. Like, it's not a language that you can translate into English, for example. It's an imagistic language. Something cool to think about, something that could probably be delved into further and translated in a deeper way that upends our conceptual schema, but that's for another time or person. The point is that this imagined Abalam boy only sees paint in paintings occasionally, in situations where they're thrumming with importance. And furthermore, the paintings are made and understood in ways outside of language, or via this new language of line and color. This restricted way of viewing two-dimensional art means that the Abalam boy has only a limited experience of viewing two-dimensional images and seeing something two-dimensional that's radically different, like a photograph of someone in motion, 
is too different from their prior experience to easily make sense of. It's like a prehistorian in a cave looking at these weird colors and lines on the cave wall. Another thing that can help us understand this is a passage from the cognitive scientist and philosopher Peter Garden Fors. He mentions a feature of vision that he says is a well-studied phenomenon, and then he fits it into his framework, which obviously you don't have the context to understand, so, so you know, ignore, ignore what you want. Garden Fors says, quote, the brain is full of mechanisms that contribute new information. In particular, there are many well-studied examples of the visual process. When we see an object, we sense it has contours, for example. But if we examine the influx of light upon the retina, we find nothing that corresponds to such contours. They are part of the information that the visual process constructs. We have plenty of simulators that complement the signals provided by our senses. Such complementations create the representations with which thinking works, since what we experience is not only that which is presented by our sensory receptors, but also that which is recreated, that is, represented by our simulators. The filled-in representations are what I call perceptions. In other words, perceptions are constructions of what's going on around us." Unquote. So as I said, Go along as far as you like with Garden Force's theoretical stuff there, but that thing about objects having contours, the edge that makes the object an object, a figure against the ground of the rest of the world, that's, that's something only due to our mind, not just our eyes. So, you know, super cool thing to think about, and another way to understand the Ablam's trouble with seeing most photographs. If the edges of things in three-dimensional reality are things that are kind of constructed by our minds, then obviously on a two-dimensional surface, what exactly the contours are, uh, you know, kind of has to be understood in... You, you, you can start to see why you have to learn to see photographs, if you've never seen them before. I think, at least. This ties into their edges in art as well, always multiple figures defined by multiple multicolored lines, the, the main feature of the style that the children adopted in their paintings. So they've been educated to see edges in two dimensions differently from how they appear in most photographs, right? Really interesting. Before I read one final concluding passage from Forge, I want to mention that there's kind of an interesting resonance with the Ablam art as described by Forge, and um, the alien language in Ted Chang's story, The Story of Your Life, which became the movie Arrival. It's pretty interesting. It's, it's about these scientists encountering aliens and trying to figure out their writing system. Um, and I think, it, I think it's analogous in some ways. In Ted Chang's story, it goes, quote, Our biggest source of confusion was the heptapod's writing. It didn't appear to be writing at all. It looked more like a bunch of intricate graphic designs. The logograms weren't arranged in rows, or a spiral, 
or any linear fashion. Instead, Flapper or Raspberry would write a sentence by sticking together as many logograms as needed into a giant conglomeration. This form of writing was reminiscent of primitive sign systems, which required a reader to know a message's context in order to understand it. Such systems were considered too limited for systematic recording of information, yet it was unlikely that the heptapods developed their level of technology with only an oral tradition. This implied one of three possibilities. The first was the heptapods had a true writing system, but they don't want to use it in front of us. Colonel Weber would identify with that one. The second was that the heptapods hadn't originated the technology they were using. They were illiterates using someone else's technology. The third, and most interesting to me, was that the heptapods were using a nonlinear system of orthography that qualified as true writing." Unquote. And as you may expect, that latter, most interesting uh, option was the one that happens in the story. The aliens have this writing system where you kind of see the whole paragraph as at once, like holistically, and how all the parts interrelate is the meaning of the writing. Instead of like us with our linear writing system where letters are placed one after the other, um, it's pretty interesting. And in the story, the narrator starts to think differently when he starts to get acclimatized to uh, reading this form of alien writing. He says, quote, With Heptapod B, I was experiencing something just as foreign. My thoughts were becoming graphically coded. There were trance-like moments during the day when my thoughts weren't expressed with my internal voice. Instead, I saw semigrams with my mind's eye, sprouting like frost on a window pane. As I grew more fluent, semigraphic designs would appear fully formed, articulating even complex ideas all at once. My thought processes weren't moving any faster as a result, though. Instead of racing forward, my mind hung balanced on the symmetry underlying the semigrams. The semigrams seemed to be something more than language. They were almost like mandalas. I found myself in a meditative state, contemplating the way in which premises and conclusions were interchangeable. There was no direction inherent in the way pro propositions were connected, no train of thought moving along a particular route. All the components in an act of reasoning were equally powerful, all having identical precedence." Unquote. So keep that in mind when I read this final passage from Forge, where he sums up Abelam painting and how it's kind of quasi-linguistic or, you know, it forms a closed system. It's very interesting to us. He says, quote, the Abelam do not ask what a painting means. The design elements all have names and they are assembled into harmonious compositions, which appear to act directly on the beholder without having to be named. Ablam art is about relationships, not about things. One of its functions is to relate and unite disparate things in terms of their place in the ritual and cosmological order. It does this, I would suggest, directly and not as an illustration to some text based in another symbolic system such as language. One of the main functions of the initiation system with its repetitive exposure of initiates to quantities of art is, I would suggest, to teach the young men to see the art. Not so he may consciously interpret it, but so that he is directly affected by it." Unquote. 
So this is a good place to wrap it up, I think. Next episode, we'll conclude with bringing it back to Rosengren and the caves and all of that. I just thought it was good to get an in-depth example of how prior experience can affect perceptions, a radically different way of making sense than anybody with access to this is used to, probably. Um, I want to end by reading a quote by the philosopher Nelson Goodman, who we'll start next episode by talking about. This is a passage that you can probably spend a lot of time thinking about. Uh, he says, quote, The plain fact is that a picture, to represent an object, must be a symbol for it, stand for it, refer to it, and that no degree of resemblance is sufficient to establish the requisite relationship of reference nor is resemblance necessary for reference. Almost anything may stand for anything else. The eye comes always ancient to its work, obsessed by its own past, and by old and new insinuations of the ear, nose, tongue, fingers, heart, and brain. It functions not as an instrument, self-powered and alone, but as a dutiful member of a complex and capricious organism. Not only how, but what it sees, is regulated by need and prejudice. It selects, rejects, discriminates, associates, classifies, analyzes, constructs. It does not so much mirror as take or make, and what it takes and makes, it sees not bare as items without attributes, but as things, as food, as people, as enemies, as stars, as weapons, nothing is seen nakedly or naked." Unquote. And I'll see you next time.